Welcome to Buy, Grow, Sell, the podcast for entrepreneurs looking to acquire, grow, or exit a business, hosted by Simon Bedard. Hey there, it's Simon Bedard here. If you're brand new to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, then welcome. It's great to have you on this journey. Since its launch, I've interviewed many entrepreneurs that have bought, grown, or sold a business. And in some cases, they've completed all three steps and started all over again. Our goal is to share the stories of business owners that have traveled at least part of this cycle so that we can learn from their experience. Whether it's the dizzying heights of success or the hard lessons learned through adversity, we get to the heart of what drives success and how to apply these lessons on your journey. So join us for the best insights, interviews, and inside information on how to buy, grow, and sell a business straight from the entrepreneurs who've lived and breathed it. Most people these days are quite fascinated with what's going on in the tech world. You know, we all hear of, uh, you know, tech companies growing and raising capital and taking over the world and selling for these ridiculous multiples. Well, my next guest is a real breath of fresh air. Uh, Luke Homan is a serial entrepreneur. He's had a couple of successful exits, but he bootstrapped and sold his last company, Cotenio which was basically an enterprise SaaS company that helped global organizations like BMW, Salesforce, eBay, uh, and many others manage around $3 billion in budgeting through a concept called participatory budgeting. Now, participatory budgeting is a, it's basically a global movement. It's been endorsed by the UN, um, and, it, and it's really about bringing together communities to decide how to invest money. Now, this is quite an interesting thing, right? Because we've all seen budgeting processes where, you know, people almost turn on each other about what project's more important. Well, after selling Cotenio, he actually launched a company called First Root, which is a platform designed to give frameworks to groups to be able to do participatory budgeting online and virtually. And in essence, you know, it's solving a massive problem about how to allocate resources in the best possible way. Um, and fundamentally, helping decision, um, businesses and other organizations make better decisions. Um, Luke's a lovely guy. I really enjoyed chatting to him. And, and I think one of the great things is that he's on a mission to actually do some real good in the world. Uh, I know that you will get a lot out of this episode. I certainly did. Uh, I hope you enjoy the show. This is Luke Homan. Hello, Luke. Welcome to the show. Hi, Simon. It's uh, great to be here. Really um, so grateful for you to share your story and spend some time with us. And I'm, I'm just so excited to hear your story. So um, I, I think it's cool and there's lots of interesting stuff here that I just know listeners are going to be really fascinated with. Maybe I've had the benefit of having a little chat to you and seeing some of your background, but maybe could you give us just to kick things off, maybe a little bit of your background and kind of what led you to, you know, the businesses that we're going to talk about today? Sure. So I think that Every entrepreneur has their origin story, much like a superhero. And my origin story actually starts way back in 2002, 2003. I was working for an Israeli security firm and I was doing, it was great. I liked working for the Israelis. Uh, I was learning a lot. I was managing a global distributed team. I had development uh, centers in Israel and Munich and Portland, Oregon and Santa Clara, California, and everything was great. But then our country, for better or for worse, and we'll try to keep the politics out of it, they, it decided to go to war. And my wife and I decided that maybe traveling in the Middle East at a time of war wasn't the best choice for yes. the family. <laughs> yeah. So it's 2002, late in the year, and uh, it's still nuclear winter in Silicon Valley. So I need to get a job. I can't get a job. I sent out an email to 40 friends saying, I'm now a consultant. Who wants to hire me? I got a phone call from a buddy about 40 minutes later saying, is this for real? I thought you were working for the Israelis. I'm like, no, nah, I left. It was great, but I'm leaving. He's like, great, I'll hire you. And I thought I would start a company to tide me over until I got a real job again, right? Because entrepreneurs, in my opinion, like that was like, the, is it a real job? And it was the, you know, Simon, it was marketing cleverness. It was Luke Homan Consulting. It was uh, yep. cunning, right? Clever. Well, one <laughs> thing leads to another, right? And, and five years later, we had changed the name of the company. 
We had uh, created a, a book about the techniques that we, that we were using. We had a set of consultants. Uh, we were growing. We were building. We were doing great. We we're doing about a $3 million run rate in a consulting firm. But what I realized was I missed product. I missed actually like building stuff as opposed to helping people build stuff. Now for all the listeners, for those of you who are individual consultants or or working in the consulting profession, that is not to denigrate consultants in any way, shape or form. It's just that I had been consulting long enough that I started to miss building stuff again on my own. So what I did was I split that company. So that was my first transaction. I split that company. I formed a new company called Contenio. I changed the name of the old company, put in a new CEO and sold a bunch of equity to him. So it was a it wasn't a full exit. It was a mostly exit, but it enabled me to get a little capital without being greedy to start doing the next thing. So cool. now Contenio is uh, formed and it, this is 2010 and we're building software to help large corporations manage their portfolio budgets, which is awful, right? The end of the year budgeting process in large corporations. Oh my gosh, it's just, ugh. you know, these big companies say work together, collaborate through the year. And then in the last quarter of their fiscal year, they're just arguing over who gets what the next year. Well, we designed a process based on participatory budgeting where a group of people come together and really truly collaborate on how to spend the money. And we started building that company. Now I'm in Silicon Valley. So most listeners are probably thinking, oh, he had a ton of venture capital and blah, blah, blah. No, I didn't have any of that. Mostly because we didn't need it. And one of the strategy choices, I know that uh, the, the show notes say to the uh, to the listeners that we're going to try and drop some gems at the end of the episode. Well, we're going to try and drop gems with Simon all episode long. So you got to listen <laughs> to the whole thing. So one of the one of the first gems is is the goal isn't to raise capital. That's never the goal. The goal is to best serve your customers. If capital is acquired in that process, then everyone benefits. But too often in Silicon Valley, all you hear about from other entrepreneurs is, hey, how much did you raise? And I kind of roll my eyes. I'm like, I don't care how much you raised. Like, mm. big deal. What I care is, what are the metrics of your company and who are you serving? And are, are the metrics suggesting that you're going to be a successful long-term enterprise? Now, if those things are all in alignment, you'll get the capital if you need it. And it turned out for us, we didn't need it. We were growing with... Uh, by the way, there's a cool term for this now. Are you ready? Yeah. It's called customer-funded growth. <laughs> like <laughs> we needed a cool new type name yeah, we, for it, like, didn't we? Like every yeah, yeah. successful, it's like really every successful company is customer-funded. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But so it's a new term. Oh man, I know. So yeah, it's so, hilarious. Can, can we? Do we have the acronym to go? So what is that? CFG. We've got our. We've got, we've got our CFG. Yeah. Strategy. What are your CFG <laughs> metrics as opposed to your pilot yeah, yeah. metrics? Right. So 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 that company now Contenio is going along and it's growing nicely now. You could argue that if we had raised capital from traditional VCs, we might have grown faster, right? One of the things capital can do is help you grow faster. But again, it just didn't seem to be needed. Mm -hmm. That company in, in started working with a partner, Scaled Agile Incorporated. Great company in the Agile software development phase. Like they're the shizzle. They're the biggest method in agile software development, more people use them. Uh, the founder is is kind of a legend in the agile community, a guy named Dean Leffingwell, a brilliant guy. And we started working together and we started integrating some of the techniques at Contenio into the scaled agile framework, also known as SAFE in lean portfolio management. Well, one day, uh, Dean and I go out to dinner and, and we had a relationship. So second gem for entrepreneurs, if you want to sell your company, avoid trying to sell your company by hiring an investment banker. Like you don't <laughs> need to, like like there are brokers for business buying and selling and there are reasons to have them. But most of the time, if you got to sell through a broker, maybe you're not selling something that people want to buy. Uh, and I learned that mistake. So part of what we're sharing is gems and mistakes. Right. So one of my mistakes was. After Continuo had been going for a while, I thought it was time to sell. So I hired a broker to help me sell. 
and they couldn't sell it. So I pissed away $150,000 trying to sell my company. And I said, no, I, I, I learned a very expensive lesson. And what I... Do, 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 can, can I probe you on that a little yeah, bit? So can, please. Can you, do you think it's to do with... The broker, I'm wondering if there's elements here that made it harder to sell. Was it that what you were doing was quite new and therefore the brokers didn't understand it or the market, it wasn't as common that the market just goes, oh, yeah, it's a widget. I get widgets. We know how widgets sell. were elements of it. I think the brokers looked at us like, oh, it's just another enterprise SaaS company. We can sell it. And I had... uh, convince myself like, oh, we're just another enterprise SaaS company. But in reality, the the process of participatory budgeting and the changes in how portfolio management is done were more at times profound than I realized because sometimes you become immune to your own. uh, you, You don't think you're clever, but other people can call you clever. And so I remember going to companies who were new customers of ours and I've been doing this now for a while. So to me, this feels normal. And to other people, it's new that S shaped curve of adoption. Yes, it applies to a market, but those changes are also to individuals. And so after our company had been in business for about five to six years, we had many long-term relationships, many repeat customers, people who had been signing enterprise licenses that were lasting three, four, five years. And I think what happened a little bit for me personally, and the mistake I made was I may have not remembered that for any individual customer, they're starting still at the same spot as everyone else. It's just that over time, my longer term customers had matured. Yes. So I think that that contributed to why it was not necessarily sellable when I thought it was sellable. And just to give time context, this was about 2016, 2015 that I was trying to, you know, 2015, 2016, um, that that was happening. Roll the clock forward a little bit more. I started working with Scaled Agile. It was really great. And I started uh, as a consultant and they, you know, we had been working and then Dean, the founder, who is a very, very successful entrepreneur, he's done like five companies, taken two public, you know, sold them. He's done very well. He takes me out to dinner and says, so what are you going to do with um, Contenio? And I said, you know, one day I'll probably sell it. And he said, well, what will you sell it for? And I said, X. And I remember he paused at dinner. He said, that's a totally fair price. And I said, well, yeah, I mean, we've worked together for a year. Why would you not expect I would give you a fair price? He said, oh, no, you're a fair guy. I know that. He said, but people psychologically uh, overvalue the things they create. And we know this from behavioral economics, right? We know that if you make the mug, you value it more than if you're buying someone else's, right? You're smiling. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, well, look, you know, we, we, we see this all the time, right? So our, our core business exit advisory does represent clients. We do take businesses to market. We do. And and I'll, there's a little bit of a, and I don't want to sound cynical here, but there's almost like a little um, in-joke that says the best buyer for a business is the seller <laughs> because they see value like nobody else does. <laughs> well, that's true. And and they're defining, by definition, the seller uh, uh, is knows how to get value, but but the reality is the buyer determines its value at the end of the day, yeah. right? The end of yeah. the transaction, the buyer determines the value. So going back to my company, we had a software business with a little bit of consulting services. So Dean said, how did you roughly get that number? I said, well, I valued my consulting services at 1.2 revenue and I value my software at six revenue because of the long-term nature and the long-term contracts. And based on blah, 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 here's the number. And again, Dean said, yeah, that's totally fair. And then the next day he called me up and said, okay, uh, we had a board meeting. We're going to, you know, do you want to sell for that number? And I had no idea that at dinner, and I don't think Dean did either. I really think it was one of those serendipitous things where, we were exploring, we were, we were working together and he just kind of offhandedly asked, you know, what are you going to do? I said, eventually I'm going to sell and it worked out. And so the lesson I think is, we should go back to what you talked about because of your advisory services. Valuation of a company is always hard. Mm. 
But when people try to go outside of the bounds of valuation metrics within industries, they get tripped up because either they're undervaluing and most of the time they're overvaluing a cash flow. And that's what people are buying. They're buying a future cash flow. You're, you're buying stock on a future, future cash flow. You're buying a company. So, so I'm sure that you must do a lot of work with valuation and valuation structures and metrics. Look, absolutely. And, and there's lots of different methodologies for valuing businesses, right? And, and certain industries lean into certain methodologies over others. Um, I, I do get a little bit frustrated with where people are so used to using this rule of thumb, oh, you're in the manufacturing industry, therefore you sell at a four times EBITDA. Like, come on, guys, like not every business in manufacturing industry is the same. So what else can we use to analyze a business and determine where quality or value sits? So we have lots of those discussions. So I'm always fascinated with the the, the real stories of how somebody went about it. And, and, without, and, and without, you know, I don't want to sit here talking too much. I want to hear your story. But one of the things I'm really interested in is that you had a clear relationship with the with the buyer. You're working with them. They get you. They get your product. They get yes. your services. You know, there's not there's not having you don't have to build this bridge of education and trust and all these sort of things because it was already there. Right. And and I think that that's sometimes discounted. I I think that in small business in in smaller transactions there is often these relationships that are built and. That also carries, uh, to me, carries through the after the acquisition. After the acquisition, I didn't sell and leave. I actually stayed and we had identified a set of integration tasks, a set of follow through tasks. I joined as an employee. I was very happy. Uh, it, it was a great job. It gave me many months and my family a chance to recharge our batteries, to enjoy uh, not being the CEO enjoy mm. not being that person. So let me ask you on that. Let me because I have had a number of clients over the years who I'm thinking of one chap in particular even who was just so stressed through the transaction. He literally he was really having emotional outbursts and a number of times I had to say to him, "Sit down, calm down, lower your voice. I understand you're stressed, but there is a logical process here that we just need to follow. We will get to an outcome. And when we do, trust me when I tell you, you're going to feel a lot better when this deal is done. All the weight of being a leader is going to come off your shoulders. You, there's going to be so many things that you don't need to think about anymore, and you can just do the things you enjoy. And, and literally, this guy, when I, I dropped into the business about three or four months after the deal was done, settled, everyone was moving on. He walked up to me with a smile on his face, ear to ear, and actually walked up and gave me a hug. He goes, oh, my God, you were spot on. And this buyer who was standing right next to him is, is such a lovely guy. You told me that, but I didn't believe it. And I'm, you know. Well, so, I, think, I think it is both true. I mean, both, both things are simultaneously true. Up until the point the deal closes, it is going to be the most stressful experience of the entrepreneur's um, life by far. Yeah. After the deal closes, if – if you were maintaining dignity and respect and you kept that foundation of hopeful trust after the deal closes, it's an instant change. Um, and it, it's, it, it can, it's, it's pretty profound and cathartic because you're going through things. And, and I have to admit that I'll, I'll give another gem. I, uh, you know, some, sometimes in, in small businesses, we get a little process sloppy. And in the sale process, I had to clean up all of my little sloppinesses. And so if I give, if I'm asked to give advice to entrepreneurs who may sell in the future, one of the pieces I had of advice I give is I now, and this isn't a sole um, plug for DocuSign. There's a couple of other companies like that, but I find DocuSign fantastic. And I just literally don't sign something unless it's in DocuSign unless it's filed properly, unless there's a backup copy in box that my lawyer manages. Because I remember one, as we're going through the contracts, there was this crazy like level of detail of due diligence. Uh, they, they said, okay, here's a, here's a, here's a, here's a uh, request from a client. Here's your proposal. Here's the statement of work and here's the payment. And I'm like, yeah, what's the problem? Well, they didn't sign the statement of work. Ooh, like, but I yeah. invoiced and I got paid. 
but yeah. we need them to sign the statement of work. So about a month of the transaction was doing tiny little cleanups uh, with clients like, hey, I know last year we completed this project for you. Could you sign it? And they'd be like, sure. <laughs> and so it's it's so much easier for the transaction process if you can build a discipline. And if you're not disciplined, then then get an executive assistant. Like just just pay the money. It's not much. Get someone who's disciplined, get an operations person, but just get someone who's going to have you follow the procedures that enable you to manage the paperwork necessary to be effective about selling your business if one day you anticipate selling. Uh, Luke, and I've got a question for you here because, uh, once again, I mean, I appreciate you, you sold to a, a business where you had a not just a, um, a business relationship, business to business, but you clearly had a relationship with the founder that, that was positive and friendly and, and whatnot. So your circumstances are a little different from a lot of people who have to go to market and find a buyer. But I, I'm curious, that, that experience that you've had there, with hindsight, do you think it would have been worthwhile having somebody come in and almost look, you know, do a review, look over your business through the eyes of a buyer and say, hey, listen, if I was buying, I'd be looking at X, Y, and Z. What have you got here? You know, just as a, a bit of a sanity check. I do. Uh, I, I, and if you provide those services, then then that would be fantastic. I, I'm not, I was not aware of those kinds of services being out there. And I think it's also because the, the I remember that my own personal story was I had tried to sell this business, a buy, you know, I hired a firm to help me sell. They were unsuccessful. And I think I kind of got lax then. I was like, oh, okay, you know, we're not sellable for a while. I'll figure it out. I'll just work yeah. on growing the business. Uh, and I'm, I make light of the 150K, but 150K for a small business is a lot. And we have Absolutely. to put on the afterburners to recover that money uh, because that's after tax, after revenue, after salary. So 150K of expenses, as we all know, is not 150K of revenue. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so uh, okay, so just playing things forward because it, it makes sense to do that. So I complete my integration tasks, I complete things and it's a year later and I've got the itch to start again. And I start a new company first route and it is also in the same space. So it's now time to define for the listeners. What is participatory budgeting? Participatory budgeting is a truly collaborative technique in which a group of individuals are given a shared set of resources and they choose how to spend or how to invest those resources. So let me give you an example from the corporate world. Let's say that I'm Cisco, who is one of my clients, or Salesforce, or eBay, or Transamerica, or BMW. The the varying the numbers would vary based on the hardware versus software. But let's say I'm Cisco, and I'm working in a product group at Cisco, and their lean portfolio budget is $80 million. Now, in that budget, they're going to have varying degrees of investment. Let's say that they've got some as small as $4 million and some as big as $10 million, but they're going to have a mix. Well, the way that we would work a participatory budgeting session is we take that $80 million and we would put eight people at a table, physical or virtual. Our software made it virtual. If you're in person, you're in person. And each person gets an equal portion of the budget. So I'd have 10 million, you'd have 10 million, Chess, your operations manager, she would have 10 million. And now we've got our budget and it's simple. We know that we have more items than we can afford because by definition, we've got a budgeting problem and we've got a prioritization problem and we have to find the best items, the items that we agree are the best items. So you see an item that costs 5 million. And you say, hey, I can solo fund that. That's really important. I believe in it. Boom. And I see an item that's 12 million and I really believe in it. But dang it, I also see another item that costs 8 million. I believe in those two items. So what I do is I put half of my money on one, half of my money on the other. And now instead of arguing about why I should get the whole budget, I start arguing for what I want. I'm saying, hey, chess. You got to join me in purchasing this. And I'm finding reasons for her to join me. This is profound because it converts something that's normally competitive into something that's truly collaborative. And you might think to yourself, oh, how interesting is that? 
Well, I'll give you an example. Uh, we worked with a company, uh, PayU, which is a global payments processor. And they were managing a 55 million euro budget. And I want you to imagine a room of 42 business leaders organized into six tables of roughly seven people. And each table is talking, but they're doing it through our software. So they all have their laptops out, but all of the, the information is being recorded. And it's not just a spreadsheet. There was a lot more behind the scenes in terms of behavioral analysis and event tracking and uh, uh, tracking things. But at the end of the day, at the end of the session, imagine you're the business leader and I just show the results. Six out of six tables funded this completely. And the ones at the bottom, no table funded. So you've wow. had six independent groups discussing, analyzing, arguing about all of these good items that were deemed well enough to bring into the portfolio discussion. And at the end of the portfolio discussion, no one funds it. And they've had no crosstalk because it's just that group. The group instantly realizes that they have very strong alignment about the most important items to fund and very strong alignment on the items that are good ideas, but not worthy of funding. And the process, I call it, you can't read a bike, meaning I can't give you a book and have you know what it feels like to be on a bicycle. You actually have to be on a bicycle to know what it feels like to be on a bicycle. And that's what this process is like. So I sold this company, SAFE integrated it into their practice. It's growing still, it's doing well. And what I had done while I was in business was I started doing it philanthropically with cities to help their residents give feedback on the city budget and in schools. And this is what got me hooked, Simon. We would go to a school and we would guide them through a five-phase program. We'd get some money and then the students would create a theme Phase one, like who should be involved and is it about school safety or is it about the school environment? Phase two, they create ideas. Phase three, they refine those ideas into specific proposals with specific prices. Phase four, the students vote on their ideas. And stage five, the students get to see their ideas implemented. And in every step of the way as adults, we try to put as much responsibility into the students as possible. So let's say in the ideation phase, students say, we really need to get new gym equipment for outside. Well, okay, but I can't do anything with that. Neither can you. So we go to the students and we say, what exactly do you want to get? And how much will it cost? And who have you talked to to know that you're getting the right thing? And who's going to help you install it? So the kids do some more research and they say, okay, we need new soccer nets or new football nets for this much money. We need new basketball nets and we need new baseballs and uh, uh, bats. And we're going to get this bat for this much money. And what's secretly happening is in the refinement stage, they're learning the core elements of budgeting, which is the foundation for, I don't care who you are, the foundation of finance is knowing your budget. And in the voting stage, they're learning the foundation of civics because they're starting to have to grapple with for the first time real decisions in a shared context. Yeah. It's magical. And so that is amazing. Yeah. It is amazing. It's it's a process that is being used by thousands of schools around the world. And part of the reason I wanted to start the company was when COVID hit. The in-person participatory budgeting programs started shutting down. And I believe in this process too much. I've seen how it affects kids and I've seen how it affects their ability to reason about the world. Uh, There's a couple of, let let me share with you a couple of meta trends that are really frightening. In every Western democracy around the world, we are seeing a decrease in civic engagement. Fewer people vote and the people who do vote are becoming more opinionated and more radicalized. Uh, We're not talking politics in respectful ways anymore. We've become, and it's really a a large source of the problem is social media, right? Social media algorithms treat humans as ads, you know, as assets to be sold to advertisers. And the algorithms of those assets are optimized to create divisive opinions, 
not collaborative opinions. So the the first principle of first route is we don't treat children as at, you know assets to sell to advertisers. So there's no ads. This is the kid driven uh, platform, and we teach them and we have integrated curriculum for both financial literacy and civics where we talk to the kids about things like voting algorithms if 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 it's a simple majority vote the majority can always keep the minority uh disadvantaged so are there vo- voting algorithms that create greater equality are there things that would benefit a minority group in this school and maybe that's okay let's go back to that gym equipment well not every kid is playing sports. Some kids are doing music. So, you know, what's the trade-off between things like music and sports and the different interest groups? I want our children around the world to have that opportunity to have those discussions in the context of a teacher who can help them manage and reason about the inevitable notions that come through those discussions. And, and and this is the difference between a technical skill like biology or physics or algebra and a life skill. The way that whether or not you spend money is part of your personal disposition, right? And the things you like. Uh, I, I One of the more important lessons I've learned about financial management is you just don't judge how people spend money because you typically don't know their context. Like uh, my wife and I, we have four kids. So you can imagine that we've spent money on kids. <laughs> <laughs> we have friends of ours who we love to go to dinner at their house because they buy really good wine. <laughs> they buy wine that my wife and I just would never buy. But... They've got two Silicon Valley professionals and no kids. So, yeah. you know, you, I can't ju- like they, they, they joke that, you know, their wine cellar is, is equivalent to our kids. Right. And it's probably true in terms of how good the wine is, but that's okay. They've, you cannot judge how other people spend money and, and learning those things in the context of school is really exciting. And so first route, is a benefit corporation. So we're here to make money, but we're also here to do a positive thing in the world by bringing participatory budgeting at massive scale into schools. And our BHAG, which is our big, hairy, audacious goal, is to get $1,000 minimum into 1 million schools around the world and watch what happens when our children are in control of a billion dollars of capital. Yeah, that is a cool, cool BHAG. <laughs> I love it. Absolutely love it. And I just love, you know, it's funny we're having this conversation because I was chatting with somebody only last week about the lack of life skills actually taught in schools. You know, kids come out of school and I, I've, I've got you know, people, we, we finished high school and they didn't know how to balance a basic budget and how to plan. Great, they learned in economics that there's a thing called supply and demand and they had this lovely little graph. But what does that teach them really about everyday life? So I, I just love this concept. And it while you're pushing it into schools, I, I noticed too, I think on your website maybe that there's, um, there's a, I think, a free version that you can implement in the family. Is that right? Yeah. I'm so thankful that you brought that up. Uh, so, uh, for all the listeners, this is a guy who did his work because, because that's something that we've just recently uh, released. So we know that it can be very difficult for kids to acquire life skills from school when their family may be living differently. Now it's not really the place for kids to come home and tell mom and dad to, to, you know, they should build a budget. It's like coming home and telling mom and dad that you should stop smoking. It it means well, but it, it's not necessarily the the place, right? So what I did was I went through a whole set of uh, financial choices, like taking a loan. Or what's the total cost of ownership of acquiring something? Or what's the difference between a capital expense versus an operating expense? And then I said, okay, kids don't always understand those concepts. So then what I did was I took three very common things that you do as a family. You take vacations, 
you make charitable donations and you make improvements into your home. And I'm not thinking about like massive, like remodel. I'm thinking about, we all make small improvements into our home over time. And the insight is, hey, wait a minute, why don't we do that using these same participatory budgeting techniques? And what we can do is we can teach our children things like, it's probably okay to take a loan to get a home improvement, but it's probably not okay to take a loan to get a vacation. And it's probably not okay to take a loan to get a charitable donation. Now let's look at total cost of ownership. Let's say that your family wants to go to Disney and your kids come to you and say, hey, on our vacation, let's go to Disney or let's go to the Legoland because the tickets are only $65. Well, as a parent, too many parents just say, no, we can't afford it. But what the parent is actually thinking is, "Okay, the ticket's sixty five dollars. I got to get lunch at the park, probably dinner. Uh, That's going to be another 30 bucks per kid. And I've got so I've got. Let's just pick a normal size family, not my big one. I've got four, I got two adults, two kids, four people. So it's now I've got, I've got to add in money for food. So that's another $120. No, oh, I look, not all the rides are free. So I got to add a little bit of budget for the rides that aren't free. And oh, the kids are probably going to want a souvenir. And oh my God, the, the, the cheapest souvenir is a t-shirt for $35. Are you kidding me? It's a t-shirt. <laughs> yeah. So what the parent is thinking about is total cost of ownership. What the kid researched to their credit was, hey, mom and dad, we can get tickets for 65 bucks. That's a learning lesson. That's a learning moment of a life skill for the difference between the child and and the parent. Now let's flip that around. Let's say that you're doing a home improvement and you really do need to replace the carpet in the bathroom or in the kitchen or in your bedroom. Well, there that the carpet is just the expense of the carpet. Right. There's not an ongoing expense. It's what we in business world would call a capital expense. Now, we may not capitalize it, but it's a capital expense. And what we've been starting to do with with kids is we've been showing that you can bring these techniques to home. And parents who've started using this, I had a an interview with one of our beta customers, uh, Nikki, uh, a few weeks ago. And she said, you know, Luke, I did this. And I didn't think it would work on family vacation. And it was amazing. It was the first time during the vacation where the kids didn't try and argue out of an agreement that we had in because we had talked about it using your software before the vacation began. And I thought that was really an amazing thing. And so, yes, now as part of our benefit corporation a status, we have chosen to make the family edition free. So for up to eight people, the family edition is free. People can go get it at firstroot.co. Uh, and we would love their feedback. Um, support at firstroot.co is how to send us feedback. Uh, oh. And we're really excited about that. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I love that you're making it free for families to get their heads around the concepts. And, you know, I think if we want to get it into schools and we want to get it into communities and um, local government organizations and places like that, well, it, it starts by getting into the community and people understanding the concepts, right? Yeah. And it's also about talking. Um, I argue that most small spend decisions are made individually. And that's what we're kind of promoted. Like, you know, Simon, go buy this. You deserve it. You earn it. Right. Well, that the, the, the here's the story I always use because I don't want to even trip myself up because I think it's a really important story. My wife and I are both runners. Now, I, we run fairly decent mileage. So I'm getting a new pair of running shoes about every quarter. If I go out and buy a new pair of running shoes, I promise you my wife does not care because yeah. it's a small expense that's completely congruent with my normal behavior and it's in our budget. Now, I do care about the opinion of the running stew, shoe salesperson because every now and then the running shoe models change and I'm like, okay, should I try a different shoe? I don't change brands a lot, but sometimes I do. Now, I mentioned we have four kids I have a 14-year-old minivan. If you looked at it, you would say, gosh, that's a minivan that's been through four kids. <laughs> and we've had the uh, our mechanic, he had the literal 
put his hand on my shoulder and say, Luke, this is the last repair. Really? (laughs) And I said, okay. So now I have a budget for a new car. How do you think my wife would feel if I drove home in a new car without consulting her? Oh, yeah, gosh. Yeah, well, we'd be coming to your funeral, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and and my, my point is we have to learn how to talk about money. And, we ha- and, and participatory budgeting gives kids those skills. It gives us that framework. It gives us the space. It gives us a structure to talk about things. You wouldn't buy stock in an IPO company if you didn't talk to your investment advisor. Everyone who's listening to this podcast would not buy or sell a company without talking to a whole slew of advisors, tax advisors, attorneys, CPAs. There's a whole team that comes in. That's really critical. You wouldn't buy or sell a house without generally talking to a realtor because it's a big, complex transaction. And it's not about how smart you are. That's the wrong way to think about it. It's really about saying humans do better when they take into account the opinions of other people, even if they disagree with those opinions. That's okay. But you need to have that, uh, you know, the phrase iron sharpens iron, right? We need to know what those choices are. And that's why we made the First Root Edition free. It's part of our commitment to helping families around the world create better outcomes for themselves. Yeah, I, I really do love it, Luke. I, and I think to this this framework, it's kind of a great leveler for people to sort of have a conversation. And it's not about one need being more important than others. It's about understanding all the different needs and collectively sort of agreeing on priorities. And And I think to your point before about saying, some of the ideas were not selected in that that example you gave us. It doesn't mean they were bad ideas and it doesn't mean those ideas won't be done down the track. It just means at the moment, they're not the priority today. That's right. And you have, and it, for, um, now I should say that the software that I'm building for kids is not as sophisticated as the software that we're using in enterprises, right? Because in enterprises, you have to deal with things like multi-term investment portfolios, if I'm if I'm BMW and I'm building a new head unit for my car, that's a three year investment horizon, e- even at the speed we're, we're operating at manufacturing. Or if I'm building a new manufacturing plant, that's one and a half to two years. Right. The other thing that I need to be able to do in business is I need to be able to look at in flight portfolio projects because I may need to adjust them up or down or even stop them if things materially changed. Uh, and we we saw that, of course, with the horrific COVID, we saw some organizations did very well, but other organizations had to make drastic changes to their budgets and they need to do that in collaboration with other leaders. That's a hard thing to do on your own is to make budget cuts. Um, so learning those skills and having that relationship, what we actually find is that when people go through participatory budgeting, it is harder and yet the results are better because you had those conversations those conversations can be very hard but when we're done it's like wow we all agreed that it was a good idea and we're not going to do it now and that's okay yeah i i I really i'm thinking of a client of mine um uh, really great business um does about sort of 40 million in revenue um the, the owner uh really hated this whole process of, you know, budgeting and making decisions. It almost felt like a little bit of a, you know, he, you know, the gavel comes down, he's made his judgment and everyone had to live with it. And there was always pushback and people resented it. And, um, you know, it's, and and God forbid, if something actually went wrong, it was all like, well, you forced us to do this and I never wanted to do it. Right. <laughs> and, I, and I just feel like this process here is to say, well, if you put the problem on the table of, guys, we've only got this amount of resource. So, how about we, you know, now we've got a framework for you, for all of us to agree on how that should be spent, then we all own the outcome, right? As opposed to playing the blame game. Yeah, I really want to dig in on that because there's two interesting data points that I can give from prior client work that that illustrates the positive and the neg- positive ways to look at what you just said. So we were working with Verisign, a security company, 
And it was their global support team. And what I often do in the business world is I segregate the, the line workers, the managers, and the actual executive team. So I, I run a forum with the executive team and I look what they do and then I compare it. And the executive team had a very clear uh, initiative that they wanted to fund. It was very quickly purchased. It was lots of strength. When I looked at all of the data from the employees, it wasn't funded once. And I went to the executive team. I'm like, okay, this is really interesting data here. And the executive team said, Luke, we actually have to do this. This is critical. I said, okay. So what we're going to do is in the old world, you would just do it. What we're going to do is we're going to put together a communication plan that explains why you're doing it. And then we're going to check with the employees. So we put together this communication plan where the head of the division, Sally Peterson, she communicates to her group globally distributed, like we're going to do this project, even though you didn't vote for it, here's why. Then we followed up. Well, it was amazing. Uh, The employees all said basically the same thing. Uh, Well, had you told us all of that, we of course would have voted for it, but you didn't tell us anything that you just told us. You you assumed that we had the same information that you did and we didn't. So part of this process is sharing information in a structured way, which helps align the employees to the leaders. The exact opposite happened. We were at BWIN party, which is a real money gaming company in Europe, more than a billion in revenue. They do poker. They do real time sports betting. They do casino games, really big company, really profitable. And we went through the same thing. We did the calibration with the leaders and the calibration with the with the uh, extended leaders. And I looked at the data and there was an innovation project. So part of the, and you can add rules. Like we made sure that that every now and then you'd add rules like, okay, you can, you can fund out of the 20 projects, 15, are, 15 possible projects are run the business and five possible projects are new. You have to pick one new. Like you just have to. That's part of the rules of how we were playing this game. So the leaders went for this one, uh, one of the new ones, and all of the employees went for a different innovation project. And we started to compare why the leaders wanted to do that innovation project and why the other employees and the leaders actually said uh, their reasons are better. Let's fund their idea. And so you can see it both ways. But the, the higher level point is if you're a leader in a modern uh, enterprise and you want to move fast, you need the best data. This gives you better data by which you can make your decisions. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that what it's all about is, you know, making, making better decisions. Right. Making better decisions faster, more people uh, bought in to your point, instead of complaining, oh, you told us to do it. It'd be, you know, it'd be much better to that leader if they all bought into the thing that failed, because then they could say, well, we all bought into it and it did fail, but we all agreed to it. So let's move on. Right. Let's not blame each other because we all agreed. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting point, Luke. Because I, I, one of my previous guests, um, a lovely guy, Matt Alderton, he, he um, he's a serial entrepreneur. He's done lots and lots of businesses. He's had some great exits. Um, and and he send them my way. We're raising a, capital. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but you know what he said is the same thing that you about making decisions. And he said, look, at the end of the day, like oh, we're all going to make mistakes, and we're all going to have some decisions that don't go the way we wanted them, but. For me to kind of live the way I want to live and and to feel good and be happy and enjoy what I do, I just need to make more better decisions than poor decisions, and and that's basically it. And understanding that I'm going to make both. <laughs> that's right. So, if you can provide a framework here that I think helps people contextualize these decisions in a better way, and I think that's half the reason people make bad decisions is they just don't have enough information or they don't understand the perspective of other people then clearly you've got a framework that's going to more likely lead you towards better outcomes. It is because we know from crowdfunding and crowdsourcing that individually people are not very effective, but as a crowd, we're actually pretty good. And so now, Simon, I can share my secret plan. My secret plan was to institutionalize participatory budgeting within business so that we knew how we could make better portfolio decisions, 
bringing into school so that we can teach it so that when kids graduate and they move into business, they're bringing those skills and using the skills that businesses are now using and bringing more effective and enlightened civic engagement because they know how to talk, they know how to debate, and then supporting their families to help create better wealth management practices and policies by better management of the actual funds the family has. So it's kind of a secret plan of just doing good. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. Luke, I could talk to you about this stuff all day, honestly. Um, And, and, you know, if there's a a way we can help get the message out here in Australia, and obviously this podcast is part of it, but, but, you know, I just love the mission. I love the objective. I I love what you're doing. So, you know, I'd love to support you here wherever I can. Are, are you happy if people reach out to connect with you? Um, yeah, sure. Um, I am really easily accessible through LinkedIn. I am uh, luke.homan at firstroot.co. And to all my Australian friends, yes, I know the slang and it's the name of the company and it is what it is. <laughs> so I'm thankful that I'm still on the podcast. <laughs> oh, that's okay. We don't mind being a little cheeky here. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, look, we'll, we'll, we'll put some links for to your LinkedIn and your website and everything in the show notes for those who'd like to go and have a look. Um, if you do reach out to Luke and connect on LinkedIn, please get, put a little connection message there. Maybe let him know that you heard him on the Buy, Build, Sell podcast so he understands where you're coming from. And um, Luke, I, I, thank you. I'm, I'm really grateful. I really, I, I'm grateful for you sharing your story, but I'm grateful that there's people like you out there trying to do some good stuff in the world. Uh, I think we need more of it. Thank you, Simon. And thank you for the opportunity to share with the listeners. Pleasure indeed. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Find out how you score on the eight factors that drive company value by completing the Value Builder Questionnaire. Upon completion, we will send through your business scorecard so you can see how to maximize the value of your company. Just go to exitadvisory.com.au forward slash scorecard. The Buy, Grow, Sell podcast is brought to you by Exit Advisory Group, a boutique M&A firm that helps business owners maximize company value and exit at the top of their game. To learn more about Exit Advisory Group, you can go to exitadvisory.com.au. And if you like what you've just heard, you can subscribe at buygrowsell.com to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.